Let's go back to 1936. Dr. Edith Patch made some predictions. Mm -hmm. Tell us about those predictions. Yeah, well, Edith Patch was one of those remarkable people. Um, Many folks have never heard of her because she was... She was born in the 1800s, and she was a scientist and entomologist um, back when there really weren't very many and became the, the first female president of the Entomological Society of America. And one of the things that she was working on in the 1930s was she became aware of the impacts that insecticides were having upon insect populations. And in particular, she was um, predicting the, the longer-term problems that this would cause, but also promoting the idea of making sure that we had habitat for insects. We were creating the, the areas that they would need in their landscapes. And so then this was what, 60, 70 years ago, which is remarkable. So in, these days, everybody's heard of Rachel Carson, but Edith Patch predated her in a way, set the scene that allowed Rachel Carson to write her book and become so well known. And then the book also talks about Frank Chapman and his efforts and Canadian scientist Eva Crane. If you would, just tell listeners very briefly their contributions. Eva Crane, she mostly worked with with honeybees um, and was very much looking at how um, what honeybees were eating and the importance of the nutritional value. And so if you think about it now, when you put honeybees in a um, in a farm, and you might have 100 acres of one crop, and that, that will feed the honeybees, but in the same way that if we were to eat French fries all day for a month, you know, that wouldn't be really great for us. We probably wouldn't die, but, you know, we wouldn't be so healthy. Um, and so a lot of the, the work that she was doing was promoting the idea of diversity in the, in the, in the honeybee diet, um, which also ties into the work that uh, Edith Patch was doing and, and the work that we're now doing, that to try and promote this diversity of flowers in the landscape. Something that surprised me in the book was the percentage of plants on Earth that depend on pollination, and I'll let you explain that if you would. Most people know what pollination is. It's the transfer of the pollen grains from one flower to another, and it's, it's necessary to ensure that those, those plants can produce seed and fruit and then have the next generation of plant. All flowering plants produce pollen and need to share that pollen, and some of them do that by just releasing it on the wind. So grasses, conifers, they do that. And that, that's what gives us the allergies that get stuck up our nose and then make us sneeze. But something like 85% of plants need an animal or some, some other way to move the pollen around because they are quite literally rooted to the spot. So they can't just walk over to the plant and say, hey, here's some pollen for you. Um, and so over time, Flowers and, and insects, and particularly bees, have evolved this amazing relationship where the, the flower produces nectar to attract a bee, and the bee will take the pollen away and um, move it to, the, uh, to an, another flower so that the, the pollination can continue. And that underlies our, the, the health of our environment. You know, springtime meadows, thanks to pollination, or the berry picking we do in the summer, thanks to pollination. Um, you know, the pumpkins that we carve at Halloween and make into pies at Thanksgiving, it's all thanks to pollination by bees. Why did it take so long for the conservation community and, frankly, the rest of us to recognize the dwindling numbers and, and the plight of bees and other pollinators? Yeah, I, I think part of it is that there just always seem to be bees. 
you know, it was not something that we we saw necessarily. I mean, with our honeybees, which are managed and, and moved around for crops, and we take the honey from and so, and so on. But there are hundreds, I mean, thousands of species of native bees in in this country, from you know, big carpenter bees and bumblebees that are more than an inch long, all the way down to tiny little bees that are you know, twelfth of an inch long, which you just you just just see as some sort of annoying little bug or a gnat or a fly or something. You just don't recognize that they're there. And that it always seems that you could have enough bees. And suddenly people realized that, wow, maybe we don't have enough bees. And it did take a long time. It was back in the 1990s um, when the, the earliest alarms were being, being rung for this issue by um, Gary Napan and Steve Buchman, um, who launched what then was called the Forgotten Pollinators Campaign. We overlook them, basically. Something that struck me as interesting in the book is the fact that um, apparently bee larvae eat pollen, whereas like yellow jacket or wasp larvae are like carnivores. Could you just talk really briefly about the difference between a bee and a wasp? Bees and wasps are very closely related. But as you mentioned, the big difference is that wasps are carnivores, they're predators, and bees are vegetarian. And so they they have very similar life cycles and similar places that they nest. But um, a wasp is going around collecting insects or sometimes bigger than insects, all sorts of things that they then take back to the nest to feed to their offspring. Um, Bees are collecting the nectar and the pollen. The nectar is a source of energy. The pollen has protein in it and all sorts of amino acids and other nutrients that the bees larvae need. And so that's what bees are doing when they go from flower to flower. They are feeding themselves and supplying their nest. It's not like they get up each day and go, wow, I've got to go off and pollinate. Pollination is a, is a byproduct of their, their work to supply the nest. The four principles of making sure you've got flowers for them to feed on, making sure they've got a a nest space or somewhere to lay their eggs, um, avoiding insecticides in your planted area, and also go out and talk to people, spread the word, because there's so much that you can do at your local level. Are we at a critical point yet, or do we have time to, to reverse the effects of insecticides and development and all of these things that have had such a detrimental effect to, to bees and other pollinators? I, I don't think it's too late. I mean, it's, it's going to take a lot of effort to to turn things around, but it's also something that everybody can contribute to and be involved in. A quote from the book, weeds aren't weeds necessarily. (laughs) Uh, I loved that quote because oftentimes we look at something, we think that's a big snarled mess of weeds, but it actually is very beneficial to pollinators. Talk about colors and scents and how we make practical decisions about what helps bees in particular. Bees have wonderful color vision. In terms of the range of colors that they see, it's as wide as the ones that we do. So you know, if it's raining and we see a rainbow, we see all the colors from red through to, to violet. Bees' vision has shifted slightly, so they don't really see red, but they can see ultraviolet. So that means that the colors that attract bees are purples and blues and yellows and oranges they don't really see red it's it's, to them it appears like like green so it just matches and blends in with the background if we're thinking about a garden the colors that we see those are good colors to attract bees what we don't see is the ultraviolet 
Um, and many flowers have markings or other patches of ultraviolet color on them that for bees to shimmer in the sunshine and attract the bees in and also help direct the bees to go in and it's like road markings to go up and say, hey, the next is in here. The other thing to consider whilst planning a garden is the number of plants and the seasons in which they bloom. I mean, there are hundreds of different species of bees in, in this country, and they will be active any time from you know, the late winter through to the fall. And that means that we would like to try and provide flowers for as, as much of those seasons as we can. So you know, early flowering plants such as willows can be really a, a good source of um, nutrition for freshly emerged bumblebees who've come out from hibernation, for example. And then all the way through to the other end of the season, you can have plants like goldenrod and asters, which are often blooming late into the, into the late summer and on into the fall. So there are all these different things that, that we can think about whilst, whilst trying to create a garden. The other thing that struck me is that it basically says you need, what, four square feet to have a pollinator garden. You don't have to have an acre of land, correct? No, that's right. I mean, the bees are everywhere in our, our, our neighborhoods. I mean, they're, they're flying around and they're looking for the flowers. If you live in a condo or an apartment and you've got a deck, you can put some planters on your deck and that, that's one more flower that's turned up in your neighborhood to support the bees. If you do have an acre, that's just fantastic. There's so much that you can do. If you've got a community garden, you can put pollinator-friendly plants in as a as a green manure, for example, um, or a ground cover. And there are all sorts of ways in which wherever you live, whatever land you have available, you can bring flowers back into the landscapes.